0: Hey there, welcome to Stories from the Mortuary. I'm your host, Alani Santiago, here to administer your daily dose of death. So I goofed you guys. Normally when I write an episode, I'm able to include even a superficial reference to the movie or movies that the case or the death inspired. For example, both the Jasper Dragging episode on the stories from the Mortuary YouTube channel and the Sweets to the Sweet episode that came out a couple weeks ago are both references to Candyman. The episode Bernie includes the mention of the movie Bernie. But I completely goofed with Unit 731 because I missed the movie series it inspired. So I'm going to take a moment now to discuss it, then we'll discuss our missing indigenous woman, and then I'll get into today's story, which I picked for this week because we are in the midst of flu season. If you take nothing else from this episode today, I hope you learn that one, always, always wash your hands, especially before preparing food, and two, the United States has a long and shameful history of prejudice against immigrants. So I want to start out by giving a huge shout out to my friend Katie. Katie works with me, and she's my go-to person to talk about horror movies. She's the only person that I can talk to about movies like a Serbian film or Cannibal Holocaust or Dog Tooth, stuff like that. She told me that she had listened to my Unit 731 episode and was surprised to hear that I didn't mention the movie Men Behind the Sun. Then I realized this is actually a movie that I've heard of before. Men Behind the Sun has appeared on multiple most gruesome horror movie lists and I've scrolled by it for years. So imagine my complete shock and surprise when she told me that the movie is actually about the Unit 731 experiments. So I decided to treat myself to a movie night and finally watch this movie that I'd been meaning to watch for years, For starters, this movie isn't just inspired by Unit 731, it's a historically accurate retelling of the atrocities caused by this unit. Technically, it's considered a historical exploitation horror film, but the point being is that it's based in fact. It includes Shiro Ishii, and they even mention General Katano and the Ishii water purification system. While I did post some of the pictures of the experiments and the Unit 731 Museum exhibits in Harbin on Instagram, there are more pictures out there. I just didn't post them because I didn't want them to be flagged, but I really implore you to go and look at them if you have the stomach for it. Because as I've said many times here, it's not enough just to hear the story. I think it's equally important to have visuals as well. So you can see some of the experiments recreated as museum exhibits at the museum in Harbin, or if you really wanna see how gruesome these experiments were, you can check out the movie, Men Behind the Sun. There's an English dub on YouTube, and I was able to find an English sub instead just because I get really distracted when foreign movies are dubbed over because the voiceovers can sound kind of silly, and this is a very serious movie. They actually turn Men Behind the Sun into a series, but I'm still working my way through them. This movie did a great job of showing how devastating these tests were and how cruel the unit was. I really appreciated that they showed that it wasn't just Chinese victims, but Russian ones as well. They do show the pellet bombs and the inmates tied up on crosses, like the picture I posted on Instagram, and they also show an experiment that I didn't even know about, which includes putting someone in a decompression chamber, which was an incredibly graphic scene. My mouth was open the entire time watching this movie because I really couldn't believe what I was seeing. They include the frostbite testing, which was tough to watch, but really helped paint a picture of how they performed that test, just because for me personally, it was hard to visualize on my own. Uh, Now I really could spend an entire episode talking about this movie and how it did an amazing job of being informative. But this is the last thing i'll tell you that will either make you really want to see this movie or never ever put yourself through it they used real corpses in the making of this film i don't want to give away too much but you can absolutely tell that they're real kind of like when you watch cannibal holocaust and you watch a scene with the turtle and you realize huh that looks crazy realistic and this movie is too old to have that advance of practical effects so yes real corpses were used in the making of this film And I do highly recommend watching it, but only if you really feel like you can handle it. And if you can't, that is totally okay. I actually am going to rename the Unit 731 episode after the movie so you can easily find it in case you forget and need a quick reminder. So go traumatize yourself like I did by watching the incredible film, Men Behind the Sun. Now I do need your help finding another missing indigenous woman. Courtney Corinna Holden lived with her adoptive mother Judy Holden, her adoptive brother Joshua Holden, and her young son on Heroy Avenue in Northeast Spokane, Washington, at the time of her disappearance. Joshua has a prior arrest record, and family members said that he said it would be easy to kill someone and hide the body. Neighbors and family members described him as dangerous, violent, and unpredictable, and said Judy seemed to be afraid of him. He'd been charged with rape in 2005, but the case was dropped before trial because the victim stopped cooperating with prosecutors. According to neighbors, the Holden's residence had numerous security cameras around the outside. Courtney didn't even own a cell phone or a car, and confided to a neighbor that she was afraid to leave the house without permission from Joshua. One neighbor regularly noticed bruises on her, and when she asked about them, Courtney said Joshua would beat on her. When Joshua found out she had a Facebook account and was using it to talk to people, he made her stop using it. Judy and Joshua referred to Courtney as Cindy, short for Cinderella, in reference to all the household chores she performed. Visitors to the house noted Courtney's son called Joshua daddy and Judy mom. Courtney had been taking prescription medication for about a year or two prior to her disappearance, getting a refill every month or two. The last refill she got was in July of 2018. The last time anyone outside the family saw Courtney was sometime that summer. One neighbor saw her carrying a large duffel bag out the front door of the house. Judy chased after her, calling for her to come back, and Courtney said, I'm not staying here anymore. Joshua forcibly picked her up and carried her back inside. No one's known to have seen Courtney since then, although money continued to get withdrawn from her bank account, and groceries kept being purchased with her food stamps. Joshua and Judy told various stories to explain Courtney's absence, that she was traveling with a boyfriend who is a long range truck driver, that she had run off with a fiance, or that she was in fact at home with them, but just wasn't available to see or speak to anyone. Courtney wasn't reported missing until early October, 2019, more than a year after she was last seen. The father of her son and his current girlfriend asked the police to perform a welfare check, saying they hadn't seen or heard from Courtney in two years. When police went to the Holden home, Courtney was gone, and Joshua and Judy didn't want to cooperate with them. Judy did, reluctantly, show a police detective Courtney's room. The detective noted the mattress was bare and it didn't look as if anyone had stayed there for a while. After the police saw Courtney's room, Judy asked them to leave. Investigators opened up a missing persons investigation. The day the missing persons report was filed, Joshua and Judy withdrew money from Courtney's bank account. That same day, a woman claiming to be Courtney called Crimeline to say she was fine. A police dispatcher also spoke to someone who claimed to be Courtney. The caller turned out to be Courtney's adoptive sister, however, and wouldn't say why she had pretended to be Courtney. By October 24th, the police came to the Holden's house to execute a search warrant and discovered Joshua and Judy had moved away, taking their six pets and the DVR from their home surveillance system. Police searched the house with cadaver dogs, but didn't find anything of interest. In mid-December, authorities located Joshua and Judy in Texas. They were living with one of Judy's other daughters and they had Courtney's son with them. The boy was given to the care of his father and the Holdens were arrested and charged with identity theft for taking money from Courtney's bank accounts and custodial interference for concealing her son. In 2021, the legal case against Joshua and Judy was resolved. Joshua pleaded guilty to custodial interference and criminal mischief and was sentenced to 135 days in jail, with credit for time served. Judy pleaded guilty to second degree custodial interference. Neither of them have been charged in Courtney's actual disappearance. Courtney's described as a loving mother who wouldn't have abandoned her child. The father of her son says he's certain she must be deceased and the investigation has turned up no evidence that she's still alive. Authorities believe that she may have been murdered. Courtney was born on February 28, 1992, was 26 at the time of her disappearance and would be 30 years old now. She's between 5'5 and 5'7, weighing between 150 and 170 pounds. She has dark brown hair and brown eyes. And if you have any information on Courtney's whereabouts, please contact the Spokane Police Department at 509-755, When we return from the break, we'll begin this week's story from the mortuary. Are you equal parts cute and spooky? Do you like horror movies and celebrate Halloween year-round? Visit WeAreCrimsonClover.com for all of your spooky needs. They have home decor, kitchenware, and clothing that'll suit all of your ghostly needs. I just ordered a Faces of Death shirt, and I'm very excited to wear it to work. Use code Miss underscore Memento underscore Mori with two I's. That is M-S underscore M-E-M-E-N-T-O underscore M-O-R-I-I for 10% off of your total purchase at checkout. Binomial nomenclature is a system of nomenclature, or naming, in which each species of animal or plant receives a name of two terms, of which the first identifies the genus to which it belongs, and the second, the species itself. There are eight levels of biological classification. Domain, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, and species. The mnemonic device commonly used to remember this is, Dear King Philip came over for good spaghetti, or some variation of that phrase. Genus specifically refers to the structure of a plant or an animal. Bacillus, which is Latin for stick or little wand, is a rod-shaped bacteria. Long before the bacillus responsible for typhoid fever was discovered in 1880, Carl Liebermeister had already assumed that the condition was due to a microorganism. He also tried with his colleagues to demonstrate that the spread of epidemic was related to drinking water contaminated by the excrement of patients with typhoid fever. William Budd, a doctor in Bristol who was interested in cholera and its intestinal fevers, demonstrated in 1873 that typhoid fever could be transmitted by a specific toxin present in excrement and that the contamination of water by the feces of patients was responsible for that propagation. According to William Budd, every case was related to another anterior case. A great number of doctors and scientists had tried to discover the nature of the microorganisms responsible for the disease and had encountered great difficulty in isolating the bacillus. It was Carl Joseph Eberth, a doctor and student of Rudolf Virchow, who in 1879 discovered the bacillus in the abdominal lymph nodes and the spleen. He had published his observations in 1880 and 1881. The genus Salmonella was named after Daniel Elmer Salmon, an American veterinary pathologist who is the administer of the USDA research program, and thus the organism was named after him, despite the fact that a variety of scientists had contributed to the quest. Salmonella thus became a new scientific knowledge, and therefore the contagion mechanisms, as well as the existence of healthy carriers, were relatively in the course of being developed. Salmonella typhi is the bacterium responsible for typhoid fever, and has been a burden on developing nations for generations. In 1829, Pierre Louis was the first to coin the term typhoid fever, after identifying lesions in the abdominal lymph nodes of patients who had died from gastric fever. The term was derived from the Greek word typhus, which meant smoky, and was used to describe the delirium that patients would exhibit with the disease. Although first described in the early 1800s, it wasn't until 1880 when the organism for typhoid fever was discovered. In 1880, German pathologist Karl Eberth identified S. enterica. It was first cultured in 1884 by George Gaffke. Several years later, Almroth-Wright developed a vaccine for the disease. Despite significant efforts in research and medical advancements, however, typhoid fever is still a major worldwide public health concern. Typhoid fever is more common in children and young adults and is associated with low-income areas in which poor sanitation is prevalent. In 2000, typhoid fever was estimated to cause 21.7 million illnesses and 216,000 deaths globally. And the International Vaccine Institute estimated that there were 11.9 million cases of typhoid fever and 129,000 deaths in low to middle income countries in 2010. However, these numbers are more than likely an underrepresentation of the true disease burden, given a large proportion of patients are treated on an outpatient basis or receive no treatment at all. In the United States, approximately 200 to 300 cases of Salmonella enterica serotype typhi are reported each year, and approximately 80% of these cases are from travelers returning from an endemic region. In the pre-antibiotic era, mortality rates were 15% greater. However, mortality rates have fallen to less than 1% with the introduction of antibiotics. Salmonella enterica is usually contracted by ingestion of food or water that is contaminated with the excrements of people that carry the organism. The bacterium must survive the gastric pH barrier in the stomach prior to sticking to the small intestine. After initial inoculation with Salmonella enterica, there's a seven to 14 day asymptomatic period. Following the initial asymptomatic period, the infected person experiences flu-like symptoms, including a fever. Abdominal symptoms are always present during the progression of the disease and can include pain, nausea, vomiting, constipation, or diarrhea. As the disease progresses, the person may develop intermittent confusion and an apathetic effect. The main way typhoid kills is by causing perforation of the small intestines, causing bacteria to pour into the abdominal cavity. This condition is called peritonitis and is often fatal. Other complications of typhoid occur when a large number of bacteria get into the bloodstream, causing bacteremia. Prejudice against refugees and immigrants has long permeated United States history, and especially during this period where the specificities of typhoid fever were still being figured out. In the eyes of the United States, the refugees seeking haven in America were poor and disease-ridden. They threatened to take jobs away from Americans and strain welfare budgets. They practiced an alien religion and pledged allegiance to a foreign leader. They were bringing with them crime. They were accused of being rapists. Fleeing a shipwreck of an island, nearly two million refugees from Ireland crossed the Atlantic to the United States in the dismal wake of the Great Hunger. Beginning in 1845, the fortunes of the Irish began to sag along with the withering leaves of the country's potato plants. Festering potatoes bled a putrid red-brown mucus as a virulent pathogen scorched Ireland's staple crop and rendered it inedible. While the potato blight struck across Europe, no corner of the continent was as dependent on tubers for survival as Ireland, which was mired in extreme poverty as a result of centuries of British rule. Packed with nutrition and easy to grow, potatoes were the only practical crop that could flourish on the minuscule plots doled out by the wealthy British Protestant landowners. The Irish consumed 7 million tons of potatoes each year. They ate potatoes for dinner, They ate them for lunch. They even ate them for breakfast. According to Irish Famine Facts by John Keating, the average adult working male in Ireland consumed a staggering 14 pounds of potatoes per day, while the average adult Irish woman ate 11.2 pounds. Through seven terrible years of famine, Ireland's poetic landscape authored tales of the macabre. Barefoot mothers with clothes dripping from their bodies clutched dead infants in their arms as they begged for food wild dogs searching for food fed on human corpses. The country's legendary 40 shades of green stained the lips of the starving, who fed on tufts of grass in a futile attempt for survival. Desperate farmers sprinkled their crops with holy water, and holy figures with eyes as empty as their stomach scraped Ireland's stubbled fields with calloused hands searching for one, just one, healthy potato. Typhus, dysentery, tuberculosis, and cholera tore through the countryside as horses maintained a constant march carting spent bodies to mass graves. More than just the pestilence was responsible for the Great Hunger. A political system ruled by London and an economic system dominated by British absentee landlords were co-conspirators. For centuries, British laws had deprived Ireland's Catholics of their rights to worship, vote, speak their language, and own land, horses, and guns. Now, with a famine raging, the Irish were denied food. Under armed guard, food convoys continued to export wheat, oats, and barley to England while Ireland starved. British lawmakers were such adherents to laissez-faire capitalism that they were reluctant to provide government aid, lest it interfere with the natural course of free markets to solve the humanitarian crisis. Ireland's population was nearly halved by the time the potato blight abated in 1852. While approximately 1 million perished, another 2 million abandoned the land that had abandoned them in the largest single population movement of the 19th century. Most of the exiles, nearly a quarter of the Irish nation, washed up on the shores of the United States. They knew little about America except one thing. It had to be better than the hell that was searing Ireland. A flotilla of 5,000 boats transported the pitiable castaways from the wasteland. Most of the refugees boarded minimally converted cargo ships. Some had been used in the past to transport slaves from Africa. And the hungry, sick passengers, many of whom spent their last pennies for transit, were treated little better than fright on a 3,000-mile journey that lasted at least four weeks. Herded like livestock in dark, cramped quarters, the Irish passengers lacked sufficient food and clean water. They choked on fetid air. They were showered (laughs) by excrement and vomit. Each adult was apportioned just 18 inches of bed space, children half that, Disease and death clung to the rancid vessels like barnacles, and nearly a quarter of the 85,000 passengers who sailed to North America aboard the aptly nicknamed coffin ships in 1847 never reached their destinations. Their bodies were wrapped in cloth, weighed down with stones, and tossed overboard to sleep forever on the bed of the ocean floor. Although most certainly tired and poor, the Irish didn't arrive in America yearning to breathe free they merely hungered to eat. Largely destitute, many exiles could progress no farther than within walking distance of the city docks where they disembarked. While some had spent all of their meager savings to pay for passage across the Atlantic, others had their voyages funded by British landlords who found it a cheaper solution to dispatch their tenants to another continent rather than pay for their charity at home. The discrimination faced by the famine refugees wasn't subtle or insidious. It was right there in black and white, in newspaper-classified advertisements that blared, no Irish need apply. The Irish filled the most menial and dangerous jobs, often at low pay. They cut canals. They dug trenches for water and sewer pipes. They laid rail lines. They cleaned houses. They slaved in textile mills. They worked as stevedores, stable workers, and blacksmiths. Mary Mallon was born in Ireland in 1869 and emigrated to the United States in 1883, amongst the height of prejudice against Irish immigrants. She made her living as a domestic servant, most often as a cook. In 1906, she got engaged to Charles Henry Warren, a wealthy New York banker who rented a residence in Oyster Bay on the north coast of Long Island for the summer. Mary continued to cook and clean in different houses across New York. However, from 1900 to 1907, nearly two dozen people fell ill with typhoid fever in households in New York City and Long Island where Mary worked. The illnesses often occurred shortly after she began working in each household, but by the time the disease was traced to its source in a household where she had recently been employed, Mary had disappeared. In 1906, after six people in a household of 11 where Mary had worked became sick with typhoid, the home's owners hired New York City Department of Health sanitary engineer George Soper. His specialty was studying typhoid fever epidemics. Other investigators were brought in as well and concluded that the outbreak likely had been caused by contaminated water. Mary continued to work as a cook, moving from household to household until 1907, when she resurfaced working in a Park Avenue home in Manhattan. George published the results of his investigation on June 15, 1907, in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Having believed initially that freshwater clams could be involved in these infections, he had hastily conducted his interrogation of the sick people and also of Mary, who had presented a moderate form of typhoid. Mary continued to host the bacteria, contaminating everything around her, which was a real threat for the surrounding environment. Although George initially feared that the soft clams were the culprits, this proved to be incorrect as not all of those stricken had eaten them. Finally, he solved the mystery and became the first author to describe a healthy carrier of Salmonella typhi in the United States. From March 1907, he started stalking Mary Mallon in Manhattan and he revealed that she was transmitting disease and death by her activity. George learned that Mary would often serve ice cream with fresh peaches on Sunday. Compared to her hot cooked meals, he deduced that no better way could be found for a cook to cleanse her hands of microbes and infect a family. His attempts to obtain samples of Mary's feces, urine, and blood earned him nothing but being chased by her. George reconstituted the puzzle by discovering that previously the cook had served in eight families. Seven of them had experienced cases of typhoid. Twenty-two people presented signs of infection, and some died. That year, about 3,000 New Yorkers had been infected by Salmonella typhi, and Mary was likely the main reason for that outbreak. Immunization against salmonella typhi was not developed until 1911, and antibiotic treatment wasn't available until 1948. Thus, a dangerous source like Mary had to be restrained. Mary was then frequently accused of being the source of contact for hundreds of the ill. George Soper, after enlisting the support of Dr. Biggs of the New York Department of Health, persuaded Dr. Josephine Baker, who, along with the police, was sent to bring Mary Malin in for testing. Dr. Baker and the police were met by an uncooperative Mary, who eluded them for five hours. At the end, she was forced to give samples. Mary's stool was positive for salmonella typhi, and thus she was transferred to North Brother Island Riverside Hospital, where she was quarantined in a cottage. In 1909, Mary unsuccessfully sued the health department. The case was brought to the Supreme Court. In the court of public opinion, Mary had stirred a debate over individual autonomy and the state's responsibility in a public health crisis. In the court of law, her lawyer argued that she had been imprisoned without due process. The court declined to release her saying, quote, "'It must protect the community against a recurrence of spreading the disease.'" During her two-year period of confinement, Mary had 120 out of 163 stool samples test positive. No one ever attempted to explain to Mary the significance of being a carrier, and she didn't have the education to understand it on her own. Her confusion and anger with her situation was revealed in a letter she wrote during the height of her quarantine. It read, In reply to Dr. Park of the Board of Health, I will state that I am not segregated with the typhoid patients. There's nobody on this island that has typhoid. There was never any effort by the board authority to do anything for me except to cast me on an island and keep me a prisoner without being sick, nor needing medical treatment. When I first came here, they took two blood cultures and feces went down three times per week, say Monday, Wednesday and Friday, respectively, until the latter part of June. After that, they only got the feces once a week, which was on Wednesday. Now they have given me a record for nearly a year for three times a week. When I first came here, I was so nervous and almost prostrated with grief and trouble. My eyes began to twitch, and the left eyelid became paralyzed and would not move. It remained in that condition for six months. There is an eye specialist who visited the island three and four times a week. He was never asked to visit me. I did not even get a cover for my eye. I had to hold my hand on it whilst going about and at night tie a bandage on it. In December, when Dr. Wilson took charge, he came to me and I told him about it. He said that it was news to him and that he would send me his electric battery, but he never sent it. However, my eye got better thanks to the almighty God. And in spite of the medical staff, Dr. Wilson ordered me uretropin. I got that on and off for a year. Sometimes they had it. And sometimes they did not. I took the uretropin for about three months all told during the whole year. If I should have continued it, it would certainly have killed me for it was very severe. Everyone knows who's acquainted in any kind of medicine that it's used for kidney trouble. In January 1908, they were about to discharge me when the resident physician came to me and asked me where I was going when I got out of here. Naturally, I said to New York, so there was a stop put to my getting out of here. Then the supervising nurse told me I was a hopeless case, and if I'd write to Dr. Darlington and tell him I'd go to my sisters in Connecticut. Now, I have no sister in that state or any other in the U.S., then in April a friend of mine went to Dr Darlington and asked him when I was to get away. He replied, that woman is all right now and she's a very expensive woman, but I cannot let her go myself. The board has to sit. Come around Saturday. When he did, Dr Darlington told this man, I've nothing more to do with this woman. Go to Dr Studdiford. He went to that doctor and he said, I cannot let this woman go and all the people that she gave the typhoid to and so many deaths occurred in the family she was with. Dr. Studdiford said to this man, go and ask Mary Mallon and inveigle her to have an operation performed to have her gallbladder removed. I'll have the best surgeon in town do the cutting. I said, no, no knife will be put on me. I've nothing the matter with my gallbladder. Dr. Wilson asked me the very same question. I also told him no. Then he replied, it might not do you any good. Also, the supervising nurse asked me to have an operation performed. I also told her no, and she made the remark, would it not be better for you to have done it than remain here? I told her no. There's a visiting doctor who came here in October. He did take quite an interest in me. He really thought I liked it here and that I did not care for my freedom. He asked me if I'd take some medicine if he brought it to me. I said I would, so he brought me some anti-autotox and some pills then. Dr. Wilson had already ordered me brewer's yeast. At first I would not take it for I'm a little afraid of the people and I have a good right for when I came to the department, they said they were in my intestinal tract. Later, another said they were in the muscles of my bowels and latterly they thought of the gallbladder. I have been in fact a peep show for everybody. Even the interns had come to see me and ask about the facts already known to the whole wide world. The tuberculosis men would say, there she is, the kidnapped woman. Dr. Park has had me illustrated in Chicago. I wonder how the said Dr. William H. Park would like to be insulted and put in the journal and call him or his wife Typhoid William Park. Signed, Mary Mallon. As stated in her letter, doctors had offered to remove her gallbladder, something she had denied. She was unsuccessfully treated with hexamethylenamin, laxatives, urotropin, and brewer's yeast. In 1910, a new health commissioner vowed to free Mary and assist her with finding suitable employment as a domestic, but not as a cook. Mary was released, but never intended to abide by the agreement. She started working again in the cuisines of her unsuspecting employers, threatening public health once more. She prepared meals for a hotel, a Broadway restaurant, a spa, and a boarding house. When, in 1915, a typhoid outbreak occurred at Sloan Maternity Hospital, George Soper was again called to investigate. As a cook of Sloan Maternity in Manhattan, she contaminated, in three months, at least 25 people, doctors, nurses, and staff. Two of them died. She had managed to be hired as Mary Brown. Since then, she was stigmatized as Typhoid Mary, and she was the butt of jokes, cartoons, and eventually Typhoid Mary appeared in medical dictionaries as a disease carrier. Mary was placed back on North Brother Island where she remained until her death. On Christmas morning, 1932, a man who came to deliver something to her found Mary on the floor of her bungalow, paralyzed. She'd had a stroke of apoplexy and never walked again. Thereafter, for six years, she was taken care of in the Riverside Hospital. She died on November 11th, 1938. Nine people attended her funeral at St. Luke's. Her body was hurried away and buried in a grave bought for that purpose at St. Raymond's Cemetery in the Bronx. A post-mortem revealed that she shed salmonella typhi bacteria from her gallstones, raising the issue of what would have happened if she had accepted the proposed operation. Some other researchers insisted that there was no autopsy and that this was another urban legend, whispered by the Health Center of Oyster Bay in order to calm ethical reactions. Mary Mallon, the first known case of a healthy carrier in the United States, was proven responsible for the contamination of at least 122 people, including 5 dead. Much speculation remains regarding the treatment that Mary received at the hands of the Department of Health, City of New York. Instead of working with her to make her realize she was a risk factor, the state quarantined her twice, making her a laboratory pet. Mary endured test after test and was only thinking of how she could cook again. She'd become a victim of the health laws, of the press, and above all, of the cynical physicians who had plenty of time to test but never had time to talk with her. Mary's case is a perfect example of how the healthcare system provokes social attitudes towards disease carriers, often associated with prejudice. This case highlighted the problematic nature of the subject and the need for an enhanced medical and legal social treatment model aimed at improving the status of disease carriers and limiting their impact on society. Probably the answer to the rhetorical question, was Mary Mallon a symbol of the threat to individual liberty or a necessary sacrifice to public health, is a single word, balance. After all, what Mary ever wanted to be was a good plain cook. The history of Mary Mallon declared unclean like a leper may give us some moral lessons on how to protect the ill and how we can be protected from illness, Mary had refused the one operation which might have cured her. In later years, she lost much of her bitterness and lived a fairly contented, if necessarily restricted life. She evidently found consolation in her religion and she was then at perfect peace in the bosom of the church to which she gave the last years of her faith and loyalty. By the time she died, New York health officials had identified more than 400 other healthy carriers of Salmonella typhi but no one else was forcibly confined or victimized as an unwanted ill. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for the next Story from the Mortuary.